All right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and tonight I have a, a special guest, one that I've been looking forward to talking to for quite some time. Um, I have termed him, um, I don't know if this is uh, this is fair or not, sort of the granddaddy of secular anti-Mormonism, or of secular... Uh, I, I don't really like the word anti-Mormon. Can you give me well, a better... No, no, neither do I. <laughs> can you, you give me a better term, Richard? Um... <clears throat> uh, uh, Non-Mormon or uh, ex-Mormon. Uh, How about Mormon critic? Mormon critic, that's a good term, yeah. Okay, so we're talking tonight with uh, Richard Packham. Welcome to Mormon Expression, Richard. Thanks for asking me, John. Now, um, you've been kicking around for, for quite a while. Maybe we should start out. There might be some who haven't had the uh, the privilege of, of making your acquaintance. So why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background as to, as to who you are and your relationship to the, the church. Uh, well, I was born and raised in the church in southeastern Idaho uh, from a long line of good Mormons on both sides. <clears throat> I was one of the first uh, in my family, at least my immediate family, to openly leave the church, and that was over 50 years ago when I was in my late 20s. I was a graduate of BYU, married in the temple. Uh, I never held any important callings in the church, I think because I always ended up in the music end of it. I was usually the chorister or the organist, so I was never uh, elders quorum president. And, and I didn't serve a mission because in those days it wasn't as important as it seems to be now that fellows served a mission. So I went to BYU instead and got married. And uh, my uh, good Mormon wife and I started having babies right away. And it was when I was in my late 20s away at graduate school that I began looking into the church because I felt that I was sort of on a mission, um, talking for the first time with a lot of people that had never been Mormon, never knew anything about Mormons. And I was going to be able to explain the gospel to them and bring them to the truth. Uh, I found as I was talking to my fellow graduate students that a lot of them knew a lot or seemed to know a lot more about the history of the church than I did. <laughs> they talked about things like the Adam-God doctrine and blood atonement and the Danites and... Uh, uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre, and I'd never even heard of any of these things. And But I knew they were wrong, of course, that I could explain it all to them. And so it was then I started a, a, a time of, of uh, in-depth research, and I was fortunate because I was near some excellent university libraries, uh, both and both the graduate schools where I attended, and they had an awful lot of material on Mormonism, both pro and con. And the more I read, the more problems I found. <clears throat> and after about three years, I, I, it, it suddenly dawned on me, and I think it was the first revelation from, from God that I had ever had. <laughs> it dawned on me that the church was not being led by God. It was just another man-made uh, institution. So I, I immediately went home after I'd had this revelation. I went home from the library where I'd 
been visited by God, so to speak, and I told my good Mormon wife that I'd found out that the church wasn't true. And that was the beginning of the end of our marriage. Um, I, uh, I didn't spend, this was, uh, this was about in the late 1950s. And uh, the church has changed a lot since then. We can maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, I didn't get too much concerned with Mormons or Mormonism uh, after I left the church. Uh, I sort of went my way and left the church alone. Of course, my family were all still in the church, and so I had some indirect contact there. Uh, I remarried a non-Mormon girl who was a lapsed Catholic. Uh, we started having a family. Um, I did follow uh, sort of from a distance some of the major things that were going on in the church, like the uh, granting of the priesthood to blacks and uh, uh, the use of uh, films in the temple endowment ceremony. Uh, that was a shocker for me. I thought, oh boy, <laughs> movies in the temple, that's a sure sign the church is in apostasy. Um, uh, I, I was intrigued when the uh, uh, Abraham Book of Abraham papyri turned up and uh, when uh, Brent Metcalf published the a new new uh, approaches to the Book of Mormon book, I was interested in that. I, I picked up a copy of that. I followed with fascination the salamander scandal when uh, Mark Hoffman killed those people and and made a fool of the church uh, authorities. Uh, but other than that, I wasn't too concerned about Mormonism until I uh, got involved on the internet and got some internet access in the late 90s. And of course, you know, what do you, you, you got this marvelous search engine thing on the computer and what is a, what is a Mormon or an ex-Mormon type in to see what there's a, there is out there? <laughs> well, I, well, and I found that there was a, that there were other people who had left the church and that had never really occurred to me. Uh, it had never occurred to me that others would have found out what I did or that others had had problems with their Mormon past. And so I, uh, I joined a couple of ex-Mormon groups. Uh, I, I got on, the first one I got on was uh, Mormons in Transition uh, at uh, um, IRR.org. Uh -huh. And I soon found out that they were all devout Christians now, and that wasn't quite what I was looking for. And then I soon found Eric Kettenen's exmormon.org website, and I felt at home there. And I've been uh, contributing on that website ever since. It was about 1997 <clears throat> that uh, a first group of people that had been on the exmormon.org website uh, on the discussion board there uh, got together in Las Vegas uh, one February to uh, meet each other in person. And I guess they had a grand time because they decided <laughs> they'd do it again the next year. And uh, 
I missed it in 97 because I wasn't all that active on that web, on that uh, discussion board. But in 98, I went. And these were people that I could understand. And I really realized for the first time how many people there were out there that were struggling with getting out of the church. For me, it had been largely an intellectual thing. But after I began meeting some of these people in person and and reading their stories on exmormon.org, uh, I realized that, that there were people that were struggling and in trouble and having a terrible time emotionally with what it meant to lose this thing that had been the basis of your life for so many, many years. And so I thought, well, maybe I can help out a little bit. So that's when I began to get more involved. And now I've been talking for, it looks like, 11 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> well, You may maybe want to jump in here sometime. That, that's, that's a fascinating introduction, and you did it so well. You covered, like, the last, uh, you know, 50 years in Mormonism in those 11 minutes. That was great. Um, you know, I, I think back to the early, early days of the church, you know, 1830, and one of the first problems that Joseph Smith ran into was apostates. You think about like uh, Mormonism Unveiled and, and those books coming out in like 34. Right. If there's one thing that the church became very skilled in dealing with, it's apostasy. The sheer number of apostates going way back, and there's a, a long, rich history that hasn't been fully explored. But the church has become very, very effective. And I don't think even most Mormons or, or ex-Mormons or people in between realize how effective the church is at marginalizing and handling apostasy. And, you know, you, you hear a lot of Mormons talk about why don't they just walk out? Why, why can't they leave the church? Why can't they leave it alone? And that sort of thing. I don't think they realize just how difficult it is emotionally and spiritually and in all other senses that the church, the church takes and controls that. And then, twist the narrative of apostasy to where you can lose jobs and lose friends and lose marriages and, and all that stuff, just how difficult it is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, and, and you're quite perceptive to see that the church is very skillful at marginalizing them and protecting those who are still in the church from the disease of apostasy. Right. And this kind of leads to where I wanted to talk tonight, um, because something changed in the mid-90s, um, and I, I think the, the real engine of that change was the internet, where the church, the church, like a lot of other big organizations, was very, very effective at controlling information. Um, you know, just like I was talking about a minute ago, making sure that members didn't talk to apostates, that apostates were, their, their voice was, was, was silenced. That books weren't published and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, well, the internet was the real game changer. And so one thing I want to focus on tonight is sort of what happened there in the mid nineties and, 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 and how the effect of it, because you were really there at the beginning. Well, and I think you've nailed it, John. Uh, it was opening up the floodgates of information. I compare it a lot to the uh, invention of the printing press in the mid-15th century, which was one of the key things that caused the Protestant Reformation, because all of a sudden printed materials were available, and they weren't all that expensive, and books could be printed, and people 
could learn to read and they were not they were not confined to just what they heard over the pulpit in the Catholic Church. And I think that the internet is having a similar kind of effect today, not just on Mormonism, but on all kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, organizations that are trying to keep information hidden. I mean, look, look what WikiLeaks has been doing. I mean, uh, you can't keep anything secret anymore. Well, yeah, you know, I was, I was thinking about that. Like you said, the printing press. Before then, if you wanted a Bible, you had to have you had to hire some monks to spend ten years to actually copy one down for you. And and you look at what happened just recently with the church handbook of instructions, where it was leaked on the internet three or four days before the church's planned rollout. That yeah. the, the cat's out of the bag, you know, for the church and for all other organizations that like to control information. Um. So so, you know, one one of the like like a lot of people, when I was a member and I was first questioning, one of the first places I landed was was those the exmormon.org, commonly referred to as the uh, the um, recovery recovery from, from Mormonism, yeah, yeah, RFM or recovery from Mormonism. Um, you know the 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 accusation has been levied that it can be so caustic and so negative that it actually does as much damage to the cause of 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 say um critical ex mormonism as it does to the as it does to help people out how would you respond to that that criticism? yeah i've heard the same thing and and to an extent that's justifiable um uh it's a justifiable criticism uh but other, but the problem is that if you want to try to control that, you end up being just like the church. You don't want to hear negative things. You don't want to hear <laughs> unpleasant things. And so what do you do? Do you stifle people from posting the <laughs> agony and the anger and the hurt that they're feeling? Um, uh and you're quite right. I think a lot of people, when they first go there, um, are are maybe turned off a little bit by uh, some of the anger. Uh, but I don't know other, any other way to do it. It's like, uh, I mean, if you, if we were to go to uh, um, a mental hospital where we were sitting in group therapy. Uh, people trying to deal with their emotional problems and come to sort of a positive kind of solution and eventually work their way out of it, um, you're going to hear a lot of screaming and shouting and nasty and, and, and uh, hard-nosed things. But maybe that's what, what you need to hear. Not just what some people need to say, but what some people need to hear. I think Mormons or even people who are just beginning to doubt and say, gee, maybe, maybe I do have some doubts about the church. I think it's important that they hear the anger and frustration that the church has produced in these people. You know, people aren't born angry at the Mormon church. <laughs> they are made angry at the church by the church and the way the people in the church have treated them and lied to them. And uh, um, so it's quite understandable. I think that we're, we're going to have to accept that 
people trying to get out of Mormonism are sometimes going to be very angry and nasty and even foul-mouthed. Well, I, I, I think on that note, the truth, and those who are friends to the truth, it's always a messy process. You know, um, oh, yeah. a, a lot of organizations that want you to buy something or want to control you somehow are always talking about happiness. But happiness and truth don't necessarily go together. And the process of arriving at truth is a, is a messy pro- process. You look at the history of science and, and it's been one of, of, you know, back and forth and, and, and going around and around. And I think sometimes that that anger and that, that rawness and those, those, those fights over principles, you know, can demonstrate how clean an organization is in terms of really seeking after, after the truth. Right. Well, that, there's that great quote, the truth shall make you free, but first it'll piss you off. <laughs> you know, and, and I think one of the, the great teachings, great in terms of, well, you know, it was very effective that Joseph Smith uh, taught, and, and, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically said, you'll know the enemy because he'll tell you that I'm lying. So, so basically, you know, you can, the, the, what the church says is, you know that the, the ex-Mormons or the critics are wrong because they're angry, as if that anger doesn't exist anywhere else. It's, it's, it's a sleight of hand. It's, it's a, it's a mental trick. And unfortunately, the only ones who fall for it tend to be those ones who are inside. Right, right. Um, that's, um, uh, it, by demonizing non-Mormons or Mormon critics, uh, the church is is doing exactly what the devil would want him to do. You know, <laughs> uh, it's uh, I, I did a little uh, page on my website about Satan, how you can recognize Satan, and you know, uh, quoting quoting the scriptures, all the scriptures I could find about how to identify Satan, and the, the thing about Satan is, according to the scriptures. He's going to look very good. He's going to be like an angel of light. He's going to uh, tell you a lot of things that you want to hear. He'll be able to deceive even the elect and so on. And the one thing that that distinguishes what's, uh, what's coming from Satan and what might be coming from God is that Satan will lie to you. God is not supposed to lie to you, according to the scriptures. And so all you have to do is look and see who's lying. Well, I mean, I've got another page on my website that is uh, a pretty long list of all the lies that the church is telling that you can verify, not just lies like, well, you know, the first vision isn't really true. That was a lie, what Joseph Smith said. That, that's kind of hard to verify. But other things, statements that have been made by church leaders, and they're lying. I mean, take one of the things that, that started me out of the church was when I found among my grandfather's mission pamphlets a reprint of the debate that John Taylor had in 1850 in France with some Protestant ministers in which he, and this was 1850, remember, in which they accused the Mormons of being polygamists. Right. And, and John Taylor said to them, that is a filthy lie. They're, you know, to accuse us of something so vile and dastardly. <laughs> it, it offends every human sensibility to think of 
of, of, of such an obscene practice. And I thought to myself at the time, this is 1850. Now, right, the polygamy wasn't announced to the public till, until two years later, but they were practicing it 1850. <laughs> and John Taylor himself had uh, almost a dozen wives back in Utah waiting for him while he was telling this lie to these Protestant ministers in France. Yeah, def oh. definitely early on. I mean, that, that you, can, you can find through the history of the church blatant, flat-out misrepresentations of the truth like you're talking about, as well as just plain old, um, you know, dissembling. I, you know, I see that all the time, the way they edit manuals, um, the, the way they, they, they twist things around. You know, there was one that I got involved with a, a couple years ago. The church has fixed it since then, but they changed the order of marriages on one of Joseph, uh, on, um, 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 Zena, Diantha, Huntington, when one of the, the, the polygamist wives, where it made it sound like her husband, her first husband had died. Um, when right. of course he, he hadn't, he was still alive and kicking, even though she was marrying Brigham Young and Joseph Smith and all that sort. So I see that, that, that sort of, um, disregard for, for factual truth all the time. I had a personal example of that. <clears throat> My mother was an adopted child. And we never did know exactly uh, who her biological parents were. Um, but um, uh, a great aunt of mine, uh, who knew my grandmother very well, uh, had also adopted a child at the same time my grandmother had. And uh, I got to know her in late life, and she told me, a few of the details about my mother's birth. And, I, and she told me that my mother had been born in Ogden, Utah, in a home for unwed mothers. So I, I told my, my, uh, my brother, D, my brother this. I said, you know, I know where mother is born. And he said, well, uh, we've always had her born in Salt Lake City. I said, well, she wasn't born in Salt Lake. She was born in Ogden. He says, well, the church has her records as being born in Salt Lake City, so we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I thought, well, that doesn't show a very important, great regard for facts. And the whole church is like that. If it's not convenient, we'll make it look right uh, the way we want it to look. So, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about this sort of um, post-internet age of, of, of criticism. And you know, one thing I want to I want to go back to, um, before that, it, it seems in in that a lot of you you mentioned um, the uh, the religious research, the Institute of Religious Research, or whatever that that you ran into, right? Huh? Um, and mm -hmm. it, it seems that a lot of the um, the material that was being published, say before the, the mid nineties, you know, really had an evangelical or, or otherwise Christian bent. And it seemed to me that not only with the internet, a real seed change took place in where the criticism was coming from. In my mind, I see a real shift to secular criticism and criticism based on scientific or rational um, grounds as opposed to, you know, this is the wrong church and we worship the right Jesus, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, you may, you may be right. Uh, uh, I found that when I was doing my research, and this was before the internet, long before the internet, I was confined to university libraries. And uh, 
I found all kinds of things that were not written from a Christian point of view, but were just written from a historical or, or even a, a point of view, or even not, not having anything to do with Mormonism. For example, I, I found a biography of James Strang, who uh, a lot of Mormons don't know, and I didn't know at the time either, uh, a lot of Mormons don't know that he was one of the major contenders with Brigham Young for the succession when Joseph Smith was killed. And uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the Mormons in Nauvoo followed Strang, including a lot of the Smith family and some of the, and, uh, uh, you know, Martin Harris followed Strang. And I had never even heard of the man. And here was a biography on the university library uh, shelf, and I pulled it down and read it. And, you know, Strang also had a set of, of ancient metal plates that he translated. And he also had witnesses that testified that they had seen the plates and hefted them and examined them. And uh, uh, you know, I thought, well, gee, you know, this... This looks just like what Joseph Smith was claiming, and I've never heard of the guy. Or, uh, or I found, uh, <clears throat> I found uh, another uh, book of sacred scripture that was produced by a man named uh, John Newbro uh, in the 1860s, who had been visited by an angel who told him that he would be the uh, the vehicle for for introducing a new scripture, if he would uh, pass this period of of uh, probation and keep himself morally clean and obedient, and sure enough, uh, a year later the angel came back to him and told him to buy a typewriter. This must have been one of the first typewriters uh, to be available. <laughs> he objected to the angel. He didn't know how to use a typewriter, the angel said, don't worry about it, buy paper. So every morning for an hour, he'd sit down at the typewriter, and his fingers would move, and he produced a, a book that's longer than the Book of Mormon called Oaspe. And there it was in the library. I thought, well, that's just exactly what Joseph Smith did. I mean... Why should I believe what Joseph Smith did was from God and not believe what Nubro did was from God? So what I'm saying is there was a lot of stuff out there that would cast doubt on the Mormon story. Yeah, yeah, def definitely. And, you know, when I, when I first started uh, doing my research, I limited myself to um, only material that had been firsthand or produced by the church you know i wouldn't i wouldn't mm -hmm. i i would see stuff online and then i would go and i'd have to get the book myself and verify it so i, I think you can find all the uh, anti-material you need that's been published by deseret book um but you you generally have to go back in time a lot of it goes down the memory hole um so, so i i know i know people I know people i mean i get a lot of correspondence from people that have found their way out and they want to make contact with me and others that have left. And I, I get a lot of email from people who say, I did not read anti-Mormon material. I read the Journal of Discourses. Right. I read the Doctrine and Covenants from cover to cover. I read the history of the church, and I was astonished. 
<laughs> uh, I have had people who are recent converts to the church telling me that the missionaries have told them when they ask about, well, could I have a copy of the Doctrine and Covenants? They say, well, you're probably not ready for it. <laughs> because I know people who have left the church just after, just after reading section 132. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the it, it's it's funny. Um, and I don't even remember where I go. I picked this up years and years ago. Um, that some poor student was talking to a professor. The professor was a secularist and was not interested in the church. And the student was pleading with them saying, you know, well, I know the Book of Mormon is true. And the professor just challenged him to do one thing. He said, read the Book of Mormon like you would read any other book. Um, basically, you know, t- t- don't give it the deference that you, you automatically give it as being scripture and, and yeah. read it with a sort of a critical eye or, or, or trying to make sense of it. And what, what you'll find once you practice that exercise is that there's a lot of stuff in the scriptures, especially in the Doctrine and Covenants and, and, and tons of it in the Book of Mormon that just don't make sense. And the problem is before you always said, well, you know, it must be me. I, I'm not righteous. I don't understand this right. book. That must mean that it, it, it's spiritual beyond my comprehension when no, it's just loopy in some places. Right. Um, so, so, so now we have this situation where people can go out and they're not, they can find the things like RFM, they can find the criticisms, and the, and there's a lot of web pages like yours, and I think of others like um, LDS-Mormon and um, Mormon Think that sort of just lay the case out. Um, what sort of impact do you see that that having on the church? Do you think it's a, it's a big impact, or do you, or do you think it's uh, making any difference? Oh, oh no, it's having a tremendous, a tremendous impact. Uh, <clears throat> I, I get email a lot of times from people who are just starting to meet with the missionaries and they say, I found your, uh, web, uh, I found your, uh, email address on this uh, website because I'm meeting with the Mormon missionaries and I wanted to learn more about the church. And so I got on the internet and, you know, so, before the internet, nobody would have found people <laughs> like me. Uh, my my nephew was a missionary in New Zealand, and uh, he was he was meeting with a family for the first time, and made an appointment to come back. And when he came back the second time. They said, you know, your name is Packham. Uh, are you related to the Packham that wrote this? And they presented him with my, uh, what I call my missionary tract for those who are investigating Mormonism. And he had to say, well, yes, uh, that's my uncle. <laughs> and of course, they, they said, well, uh, that was the end of the discussions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I find it, and I think the numbers are bearing this out. Of course, the the numbers are another thing the church obfuscates. But um, it seems that in the industrial world, in those who have access to the internet, the the baptism just have to have gone completely flat. Because you know, anymore, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to Google, you're going to Google the 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 Mormon Church. You're going to Google about Joseph Smith. And, right. you know, despite all their efforts, you know, I, I don't know what it is these days, but, uh, you know, you're going to hit in the top 10 um, some unflattering information. Well, and w- w- one point I try to make with people that are just starting to investigate the church and contact me, I tell them, look, <clears throat> don't believe everything they tell you, and also don't believe everything I tell you. 
<laughs> I said, notice, I, I want you, before you make any kind of commitment, you need to investigate both sides very thoroughly. And I said, now notice that I'm telling you to investigate both sides. Notice that the missionaries are probably not going to tell you to investigate both sides. They're going to tell you that anything that's critical of the church is a lie and distorted and, and from Satan. And it's Satan trying to keep you away from the truth. But I said, that should be a red flag that they're telling you, don't listen to the other side. Yeah, you know, I, I noticed that phenomenon. You know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously not any sort of big player anywhere, but, you know, we'll let anybody on, on, on the podcast, and oftentimes the, the faithful will decline. They don't want to engage in that. But, you know, on the other hand, you take something like um, God's Army, the movie that was done by Richard Dutcher. Right. Fabulous sales. It's a faith-promoting story. It was, you know, hailed and put up, and, and it, it was something that, you know, it was the first, like, real serious Mormon film, had a great run, until Richard Dutcher left the church. And you cannot find any reference to that film in, you know, in Deseret Book or in, in anything else. You know, just even the slightest hint of criticism, the, the idea that a director 10 years later would have had a, a faith crisis is enough for them to pull it out of the catalog. And, you know, I, I actually think their position is stronger <laughs> than they, than they let on. It, it, I, I don't, I don't quite understand all their actions all the time. Well, that I can only hope that that the ordinary member of the church notices this kind of thing going on. They notice that, well, gee, I can't get a copy of God's Army. I, by the way, I picked it up at the thrift store the other day. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet, but I, I found a copy of it for a dollar. <clears throat> My wife won't sit and watch it with me. She's tired of the Mormons. <laughs> <clears throat> but they, but that, but they, uh, I think that, that this kind of behavior on the part of the church does cause a lot of members to say, what's going on? Why do they have to do this? Why isn't the church more open? Uh, and maybe it'll start him thinking. Yeah, you know, um, and and I I think they realize it to some extent. You know, they they ballyhoo when they open up the library and when they have the latest version of the 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 Joseph Smith papers come out. And I applaud their steps in that that direction. You know, because because I think one of the side casualties in that is our our, our meaning us the Mormon people our narrative and our history. Um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of journals and and experience has been bulldozed over and buried in the church stacks for fear of it hurting the brethren. When it's really our story, it's what happened to our grandparents and and our great grandparents, and and that's what sort of irks me more than anything. Is is the church? Uh, it's about ten years ago, maybe a little bit longer. The church issued some uh, some CDs or, or some DVDs. I guess there were CDs at the time that that, that had um, scans of a lot of historical documents. Now, when they they released it, they put priced it like six or seven hundred dollars so that no one would buy it. Um, but they blacked out names, um, and these are documents that are 170 years old. It's hard to make the case, you know, when the church in the Doctrine and Covenants it publicly, you know, 
talks about people committing adultery and stuff, it's hard to make the case that you're protecting the church at that point. And, 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 and that's probably why I still get sort of bent out of shape about this sort of stuff. Yeah, I understand why you get bent out of shape. Uh, but it's why, why more members don't notice what's going on. Um, I think, I think people are noticing, um, I know some devout Mormons uh, indirectly who've expressed dismay at how the lesson manuals are being dumbed down. Yeah, you know, and, and this year they even stopped, you know, they were doing the run of the teachings of the president of the church, and they stopped that and went back to gospel principles, um, you know, which is it's which is a really basic manual written on about an eighth grade level uh and it's 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 a shame because the church is full of intelligent bright people and that 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 salt lake distrusts its membership to such a degree that all the adults are sitting there listening to this this prattle on about you know praying and obeying and that sort of stuff well my my wife has uh, often comments well, she actually is quoting an ex-Mormon friend of mine who said, "Well, uh, you know, the bright and the brightest are the ones that are leaving." <laughs> well, I, I think I think uh, bright people tend to leave, but I also think there's a lot of bright people who who are who are still inside. And you know, this point has been made by others. Um, it takes the really bright people to make the rationalizations because they're not real easy to do. Um, there are some really clever people who can string a whole bunch of things that don't make any sense to me together to to get to the apologetic works that they do. Well, that's a very good point, and and you have to wonder about those people. I mean, uh, uh, if if you believe half of what has been said about Hugh Nibley, uh, <laughs> apart from his relationship with his with his children, uh, you. You get the impression that poor Professor Nibley was kind of had to go out of his mind in order to hang on. Yeah, I, when I read Nibley's stuff, I get the sense that he was thinking himself in circles, um, and he arrives at conclusions that just I, I don't think would be supported by his 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 vast array of documents covering you know three hundred years of and. Anyway, I, I, I thinking yeah, himself in circles. There's there's a there's a great quote I've I've come across. It something like, um, you know, if you want to, uh, oh, oh, a, a scholar can, in the course of a uh, a thousand pages, make something so obscure that <laughs> a child would notice it if it were said in a single sentence. That it was uh, phony. Oh, I've messed that up real bad. But <laughs> the idea is that you can obfuscate with a f with a torrent of words. Another one who's who's uh, who uses this technique a lot is Carrie Shirts. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of Carrie Shirts published stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, Brother Shirts. Yeah, yeah, and and he'll he'll go on for twenty thirty pages with just in nibbly style with all kinds of fancy footnotes and quoting half a dozen foreign journals and uh, and it comes out and you wonder well what was that all about uh, what 
was the point, and uh, he completely avoids the issue. You know, that, that, but it's a, it's a skill. It's a skill. Oh, ab- absolutely. And in, in the Mormon Church, it's apparently a well-paid skill. <laughs> Uh, you know that that leads me to a point. Uh, you know, of an accusation that I've gotten before, and I know others um, who have been critical of the church. They, they say that, well, you know, Mormons might be too black and white of thinkers, um, but but you critics are even more so. You're more guilty of that sin of of, of black and white. Um, how, how do you respond to that? To the to the idea that the critic is is too black and white in their thinking. Well, I guess it depends on which critic you're talking about, but uh, personally, I I don't see everything as black and white. That was one of the things I learned when I left the church. Uh, there is a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray. <clears throat> uh, for example, I'm I'm the first to say Joseph Smith taught a lot of principles that are very fine and admirable. Uh, and principles that I still use in my own uh, life and view of the world, like uh, eternal progression, uh, or uh, man is that he might have joy, or, uh, uh, you know, you should uh, consider, you consider that the, that uh, preserving your body's health is uh, is a divine obligation. I mean, those are all wonderful things. That families are important. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree. You know, and and my my response is often, well, you know, I I I I don't generally believe in anything supernatural. So, even those who claim to have supernatural knowledge gain knowledge from the same source that we all do. So, if um, they can come up, if anybody can come up with good things and good teachings, well, people who claim religious. Uh, um, uh, religious influence can do so also. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Well, exactly right. And there, there again, another two examples of the twelfth article of faith. You know, whatever is good, worthy, or trustworthy, we seek truthful or whatever it is, we seek after these things. Or the eleventh article of faith. You know, we we grant every man the right to the right to worship whoever and whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I do think on, on on a defense of the black and white thing, there are some things that have to be black and white, though. And, and yes, you know, you're f- right. For example, you know, and, and let, let, let me take a little sidebar. Uh, Mormons and other religions use loaded words like the word prophet or even the word true. So we can talk all day long about whether Joseph Smith was a prophet, but likely everybody's thinking something different. But Joseph Smith either got some sort of supernatural knowledge or he didn't. Um, and and at some point it boils down to that. And, and I think a Mormon phrased the question, either he was a true prophet or he wasn't. But there, there are some things that have to either be, they're, they're, they're toggles and they're, they're binaries. And I don't think that, that going to that black and white sort of thing on that, on those sort of questions is, is a fault. I do think it's yeah, a fault when right. we say you're right about that. Everything's true or everything's <clears throat> false. You know, the church is true. That, that, that's nonsense. There's, there's no way a church can be true. Well, it's. Uh, I'm reminded of a comment that uh, one of the apostles, I think it was Dallin Oaks, made to Marianne Benson when Marianne and Steve were having problems about the church, and Marianne had gone through the Book of Mormon and copied and and marked everything that was a plagiarism or nonsense or or uh, something and something questionable, 
And uh, the apostle looked at her Book of Mormon and said to her, well, look, uh, you've only marked about 5% of the book. So, you know, uh, that means that 95% of it is just fine. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and uh, it, it didn't quite quite take with Marianne. Yeah, it's a, uh, she, hey, hey, sweetheart, I, I was faithful for, you know, 10,000 nights that we were married. It was only those 50 that, uh, right. <laughs> right. I was only unfaithful once, and that was with the, with the, with the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> uh, all right. So we and, uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm getting the same kind of thing. I'm involved in a, in a written debate with uh, a Mormon apologist about the Book of Mormon, whether it's a historical document or not. And he's taking the attitude, well, You've just listed all the, all the things that you think are wrong. Let me list all the things that are, that are, uh, the evidence, all the evidence there is in favor of the Book of Mormon. Yes. Let's, well, it doesn't work that way. Let's talk about one of those. Let's talk about chiasmus, for example. How do you, how do you respond to arguments like, um, you know, the, 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 that the existence of Hebraic chiasmus in the Book of Mormon point to its ancient and therefore divine origins? Well, that's one of the stupidest arguments in favor of the Book of Mormon <laughs> that there is, because it's so easy to refute it. You can find you can find chiasmus in Joseph Smith's letters. You can find it in letters from John Taylor. Uh, you can find it in Doctor Seuss, Sam. I am. I am Sam. You know, uh, I do not. And I do not like green ham. That one, you know, yeah, that's so got chiasm. My, 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 and, my and, favorite and you, rebuttal, yeah. Yeah, and you can find chiasm also in uh, Solomon Spalding's manuscript found. Um, yeah, and there's supposed to be uh, so, chiasmus so if, in... Uh, if, it if it proves the Book of Mormon is ancient, then Solomon Spalding's manuscript is ancient, and so are <laughs> John Taylor's. There's, As a matter of fact, there is an entire website having to do nothing with no, nothing to do with Mormonism about chiasm, chiasmus. And the guy has collected examples of chiasmus in all kinds of, of uh, pieces of literature. So it proves absolutely nothing about the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and I, I think one of the, the methods that the uh, apologists and others use is sort of a divide-and-conquer routine where they, they want to take a, a small piece and then say, see, these small pieces. But, you know, I, I, I personally, you know, this is, this is John speaking, when you add them all up together, it sort of dies the death of a thousand cuts. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that actually the church has been around for a long time is I don't think there's a smoking gun per se. I don't think there's like one thing that you can look at because every one of them has a sort of an out, has a, dis a way to dismiss it. But when you look at it holistically and probabilistically and saying, okay, you know, given, given the Book of Mormon and all the things you have to accept for it to be true, you know, that there's golden plates and that angels take them and don't allow people to see them and, and you can run through forests with them and, and all just, and you add all that stuff up together. That, that's where the problem comes for me. Yeah, well, and of course, I uh, after I left the church, I uh, went back to school and 
got my law degree. And so I tend to look at things from a legal evidentiary point of view. And in the law, there is the principle of a reasonable doubt. Uh, you, you can't prove with 100% absolute certainty anything. But you can prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And in, a, in very special cases, like criminal cases, the, you, you, the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt their case. And if there is no reasonable doubt, then they've, their case is proven and the guy is convicted. But if, but if the defense can raise any reasonable doubt, as to the prosecution's case, then the prosecution loses and the guy's declared not guilty. And applying that to questions like Mormonism, is there any reasonable doubt about whether Mormonism is true? Well, I thought, yeah, I can compile a list. And so I put together a list, it's on my website, 101 reasonable doubts as to why Mormonism isn't what it claims to be. And actually, I think I got it up to 110. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all it takes is one reasonable doubt to destroy the case. Uh, uh, it only takes one hole in the hull of a ship to sink the ship, no matter how good the rest of the hull is. It only takes one little hole in your heart, and you're dead. <laughs> no matter how healthy the rest of your body is. All right. So let's say that uh, you get a call tomorrow morning and they fly yeah. you out to, to Salt Lake and they say, you know, we've, we've, we've screwed up. We've made a lot of mistakes. And, and we realize that, you know, Richard, you're, you're a bright guy. Help us out. Wh what should we do? What, what advice would you give to the church right now? Knowing that there's, you know, millions of people hanging on the line and, and, and everything the church has going, what would you tell them? Well, that's a very good question, and you're not the first to ask me that. Uh, a number of years <laughs> ago, my brother, who had just been appointed, just been called to be bishop, um, wrote to me. We've had a very good relationship in spite of the fact that we're on opposite sides of the Mormon fence. <clears throat> and he he said, you know, I... I I know Richard that you're that you don't believe in Mormonism, but I'm I've been called, and I feel that I have a responsibility to help people to stay in the church. And what advice would you give me? And so I pondered that one for a while, and I emailed him back. And the letter that I wrote to him is on my website. Uh, I think it's called Letter to a Mormon Bishop. And uh, and I told him, look, um, remember that not everybody is supposed to go to the celestial kingdom. There are some people that, that don't want to go there. They wouldn't be happy there. They're, they would be happy in a lower kingdom. Let them go. I said, don't, don't try to hang on to them thinking that you know what is best for them. Uh, let them go in peace with God's speed and, uh, 
remember them fondly. Um, I also told him, uh, I suggested to him, I said, don't try to solve problems that arise that you are not really trained to solve. Mm. And being called by men who say they are inspired of God is not the same as being trained to counsel people who are suicidal or counsel homosexuals, people having trouble with their sexuality, or counsel uh, couples that are having marital problems. I said, you're not trained to do that, so don't try. Get these people the kind of help that they need. Um, I gave him some other kinds of advice, too. Uh, I, I think I included be honest with people. Hmm. Tell them the truth, even if it hurts you. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. I said, and ask God humbly every night when you get down and say your prayers, ask God humbly to forgive you for all the mess-ups that you know you must have made during the day. Now, I doubt that any of the apostles would take that advice of mine, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, th I think they're in a hard spot. I mean, I... Well, they are. I often get asked the question, well, what do you think? Do you do you think the general authorities know about all these problems? <laughs> yeah, I get asked the, the same question. <laughs> what, well, what do you what do you what do you respond? I, I I think they're marginally aware. I, I think I think they go through a vetting process. As a matter of fact, um, you know, John Delin talked a few years ago on his podcast that when he worked software for the church, he he worked creating a web uh, web application or whatever a, a, a computer program that would track potential future general authorities these guys are oh, really? these guys are picked and they're vetted for usually their business acumen for their loyalty to the institution for their unwavering problem you know they're watched for, mm -hmm. for years and years and years and years and they're not the type of guy who are going to get hung up on doctrinal problems and i don't i don't say that as an insult i just say that that's that's who they choose that's who's there they when's the last theologian the the only guy who's even marginally like that right now is packer and he's about to die there, there hasn't been a scriptorian in years, and and that's that's by design. So these guys are not equipped to deal with theological problems. They're equipped to deal with the financials, the bottom line. Yeah, and and that's more or less what I answer when people ask me this question. I say, well, put yourself. Uh, how does one get to be a general authority? Right. I said, you don't get to be a general authority by raising embarrassing questions or uh, expressing doubts, or pointing out problems. Remember what happened to B.H. Roberts when he, when he pointed out, wanted to try to point out to the uh, Quorum of the Twelve that there were problems with the Book of Mormon. They wouldn't listen to him. They just all bore their testimony that they knew it was true. And that was the end of the discussion. And so the, the way you get to be a general authority is you do not ask questions. Now, right. if a question comes up, if, uh, you know, if President Monson finally gets a question that he thinks might be troublesome, uh, some question about science, you know, DNA or the age of the earth or something like that, 
what is he going to do? He's not going to pray to God about it, but he's going to want to have to deal with it. And so he turns it over to somebody at BYU. I mean, if it's a question about DNA, he turns it over to one of the biologists down there. When I put yourself in that biologist's position, here the president <laughs> of the church is asking me to deal with this troublesome issue that might arise in science. So what does he do? His job is on the line, probably right. his family, his temple recommend for sure. So he racks his brain to come up with some cockamamie, far out thing that just might fly. And he writes up, uh, you know, a 400 page uh, document full of all kinds of footnotes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with the conclusion, it's not a problem. Monson gets it. He, re he doesn't read the whole thing. He reads the conclusion. Professor so-and-so at BYU has said this is not a problem. Mm -hmm. And so he, uh, he, uh, he can tell the Quorum of the Twelve or anybody else that asks him, don't, especially a member, don't worry about this. Professor so-and-so at BYU has looked into this and it's nothing to worry about. And he can go to sleep at night with a clear conscience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, my experience anecdotally is that most of those correspondences never reach the light of day. There's still plausible deniability and they're, they're kept shielded. So even if there was something they could be pinned down in there, they, they've, they've, they've made it so that, uh, it, it won't stick to them. Right, right. Yeah. The de deniable plausibility or plausible deniability. I forget which it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I think the, the brethren have probably the greatest control mechanism ever devised in the heart of men, which is there's 15 of them. They meet every Wednesday. It's a lifelong appointment, and they vote in reverse order by age and seniority, and, um, and they're expected as a quorum to vote unanimously. So if you're the new junior guy in there and you want to see something right. changed, you're going to listen to people you have held to be prophets, seers, and revelators for the last 30 or 40 years, vote one after the other, after the other, after the other, in a way different than what you think. By the time it gets to you, you got to have huge balls to vote against that, that group. And even we have, we have, um, record of instances where some, a junior apostle did, and they just tabled the motion and brought it back next, next, week or whatever. So right. the amount of social control over those guys, you know, we always think and, and we talk about, you know, the brethren controlling, you know, the, 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 the membership, but the control going the other direction, I think is even bigger and even stronger. I think you're absolutely right, John. All right. And then uh, the one last question I have for you. So, you know, we have a lot of people who listen and I'm very empathetic to, empathetic to them who may not believe or may be struggling in their testimony or, or, you know, struggling with some of these issues, but feel uh, compelled to stay in the church. Um, after your experience online and the years you've been doing this, what advice do you give them? Well, if you can, if you can do it, if uh, most people in that situation, I think, are, are in that situation because they are not really completely free because they are tied by family ties, by uh, by uh, a marriage to a devout spouse, uh, children who are devout. Uh, they may 
have a job that where it's important that they're LDS. And so my advice to them is, if you can manage it, stick it out. Uh, you know, uh, you will, you'll maybe have some emotional problems and you may not be very happy, but uh, it's up to you to weigh the consequences because once you're out of the closet, once you let everybody know that you don't believe it anymore, there's no going back, really. Yeah. So it's a it's a big step, and and I feel sorry. I I, I feel terribly sorry for people in that situation. Uh, I I was in that situation, and 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 I made the choice, probably not realizing all of the consequences with it ending up being losing my wife and children. But, but, uh, and I, I probably would have made the same choice, but I certainly do understand people that make the other choice and I weep for them because it's, it's an, it's a tragic. It's tragic. It, it is. It's heartbreaking all the way around. And, yeah, I can only speak for myself. You know, I, I continue to engage the, this this question and engage Mormonism. I, 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 it's probably more so because of that heartbreak that I went through, and that I see friends and family and others go through that that, that keeps me around. Uh, and one one other comment, and I and I I'm convinced that there are. A hundred times more people in that situation than you and I are even aware of. I, I believe that a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I believe there's a huge contingency in virtually every ward that sits quietly, and they they don't know that there's a, a whole lot of others out there just like them. A lot of those people are on the Recovery from Mormonism discussion board because they <laughs> because they can post there anonymously. Well, and I think there are also some on on the New Order Mormon discussion board and the Post Mormon board, and and it's uh, I mean they're they are they are the hidden the hidden sufferers. Yeah, for and if you look at the stats on those boards, and it's the same way for our podcast. For every you know one person who contributes or puts up a comment, there's easily a hundred or two hundred who just are watching and listening. And um, probably trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah. Well, Richard, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed our our conversation. Um, um, Thank you. So let's see your your website. Um, probably the easiest way is just to to, to Google um, Richard Packham Mormon, and and, you, and you'll you'll hit a, a lot of good stuff. Uh, but what what's that's right? What's yeah. the what's the URL? <clears throat> uh, Packham P A C K H A M dot N for that's uh, Nephi for Standard Works Moroni dot org, and we'll and we'll put a link up to it from uh, our website. Thank you. Um, once again, uh, as always, the discussion continues at the uh, website at mormonexpression.com. And uh, Richard, thanks again. Thank you, John. Good night. <laughs>